Hello, and welcome back to the Centennial 38 podcast. My name is Warners. And I'm Jared. And today we are joined by none other than Richard Fleming. Richard Fleming, how are you doing? I'm good, yeah. I've just, uh, for those that are listening in a, in a few days, it's obviously we're recording this during the snow, so it was <laughs> a little... A little on the cool side, shall we say, on the on the on the wander over. Yeah, uh, you know, ima- imagine not only uh, kind of walking through it, but imagine working through it. <laughs> so that was kind of my morning this morning. Oh goodness! Um, but you know, it's it, it's it's February in Colorado, and uh, that's that's kind of, that's typically how we met. Uh, how we go through it. In fact, the first ever kind of Centennial Thirty Eight podcast was <laughs> kind of recorded during a during a blizzard, during a little snowstorm. So I mean, we're kind of <laughs> calling it back here to this uh to this wednesday uh evening uh but yeah we have uh, uh richard fleming here uh you know we got some questions prepared for you um i know first of all though we want to just say uh how honored we are to really have you here um you being the 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 10 year guy or nine year guy of the of the rapids kind of the voice of the team i remember my first time ever watching the rapids you were the uh the broadcaster there and the commentator so this will be uncharted territory for me as i finally see what it what it what it's like without having richard you know and um (laughs) from what i heard before you came around it was very much disjointed and stuff Mm -hmm. like that and you came in and you course corrected and you know, I never saw how bad it was before you, but all I can say is thank you. Thank no, that's that's really kind. And um, yeah, it was um, it was a little chaotic um, when I came in, and and you know the understanding from my and, and look, and I, I've heard the story from from Marcelo down the years. I think uh, the season before I arrived, so 2012, I think he had five, maybe six different commentators that he would rotate with. Um, and it was just tough, you know. They had uh, they had guys that you know soccer wasn't their thing, and and you know they were thrown in and they were on a rotation basis, and it w- it was almost like oh uh, you're going out this week, and like, oh do I have to? So there wasn't the passion, <laughs> there wasn't the enthusiasm, and um, there wasn't kind of the buy-in. Um, but uh, yeah, I arrived um, a little under ten years ago, and um, ten seasons, um, and it's going to be odd for me as well, you know. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, nothing to do on a on a Saturday night. I say nothing to do. My wife will find me plenty to do um, uh, around the house uh, on, on on the weekends now. But um, yeah, it's going to be odd. You know, not going out to training and not covering games and um, not um, you know speaking with players and doing all that research and you know uh, to an extent even even watching the league. You know, there may be less of that over over the next uh, over the next season. So it's going to be strange. Um, you know, I loved uh, every single minute of the of the ten seasons, um, even the challenges, and there were lots and lots of challenges. Certainly early on, um, you know, we had, uh, and I think Dave Wegner mentioned it um, during that little ceremony at the end of last season, where they had a, Altitude TV put a, a graphic up with the lineup, and they had Stu Seyus, who's a backup goalkeeper, as I think left midfielder and right winger. <laughs> Uh, on the graphic I mean they were just killing me and I would just walk out afterwards um, and 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 again wonderful people lovely people but they just soccer wasn't their thing and so there was a an education kind of process that we went through we built safety nets into um, graphics so I would look at the graphics before every game 
uh, and then what happened is the in-game graphics would be wrong and there was nothing I could do about those because I'm on air and I remember one goal um, uh, it was at Dick's Sporting Goods Park and Nathan Sturgis got the assist and they were in such a hurry to get the graphic up on screen that they only wrote the first three letters of assist. So, <laughs> uh, exactly, you, you, you've caught up. So, and of course, you know, that screenshot and it's on social media and you, you get out after the game and that's the only thing that people are talking about. You could have had 95% of the game could have been error-free and it's things that are outside of your control. And so there were a lot of frustrations and... Um, you know, the standard was kind of belittled uh, across the league and locally. Um, and it was a massive transformation. And, I th and, and as you say, um, th th there, are, there are those that have jumped on board since my arrival that kind of didn't realize what it was like before. And that's not to say that there's a greater appreciation, but, um, you know, there are those that were around in the early days and they were around in the, you know, after MLS Cup and prior to my arrival and they realized that transformation. Um, and there were a lot, of, again, you know, myself and, and Marcelo put in a, a lot of hard yards, but there were people like Mike Rigg and, and Aaron and Jenny and, uh, and, and other guys behind the scenes at Altitude that soccer wasn't their thing, but they could see from our passion and they bought in and, and, and we kind of, we took it in a, in a, a wonderfully new, new direction to, to such an extent that at the end of last season, you know, people were talking about, um, uh, you know, bidding farewell to all of these broadcasters and, and uh, Marcelo and I were kind of put in the top three of, you know, as a broadcast team. So again, whether that was an accurate position for us, but it was an indicator as to how far we'd come from being the laughing stock around the league to, to, to having that respect. And, you know, that, that was a, you know, a, a huge, a huge journey we've been on. Well, I can tell you from a C38 perspective, we had you in the top two broadcast teams and you weren't number two. So <laughs> let me figure that one out. That's okay. the estimation yeah. that you, you had from, from the fan base here. And, uh, we, we thank you for those years. And, um, you know, Looking at this upcoming season, mm -hmm. how much do you think that you will, you know, cover the Rapids or, you know, talk about the Rapids maybe from different channels? I know you're a, a football man through and through and a, a, a soccer man. Yeah. Um, so how do you think you'll you'll cover the team this year, if any? I'm not sure I will, to be honest. Uh, and, and it's going to be odd. There's, there's no role for me. I mean, I, of course, social media is a wonderful thing. I can always chip in and but. There's, there's, there's nothing, there's nothing there. Um, I won't be watching the team every week. I won't be out at training. I won't be talking to the players, um, the coaching staff, um, and and that kind of gives you that, that greater insight to give you that greater authority to obviously give you that greater credibility. Um, you know, I'll just be a, a, a bystander like most others. I won't have that insight. I won't have that inside track, um, and so. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure I, I may catch a few games here and there. Uh, I've not even invested in the, the MLS pass yet, or the Apple part. I will do. Um, but, yeah, it's, 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 it's going to be strange. I mean, it, it, was, um, it was never taken for granted, but it was, you know, you know you're in the, the thick of it. And it was just, you know, one season and then another season and then the next season. And, and we kind of knew about four or five years ago that this was coming. 
Um, most of the well, the regional uh, sports networks have been told at the end of 2022, you know, the teams have been told not to renew those deals. So we knew something was 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 in the offing. We didn't know what that was going to be, um, and so it was. It was it was one season followed another, and and um, you kind of got into that routine, and that routine now has been taken away, um, and 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 I I've gone through almost like a I've gone through a, a, a process over the last few weeks thinking well, it's almost like you hear people when they retire, not that I've retired, but you hear it's like. Because I had a routine. That working day is a routine. You get up, you get dressed, you go to work, you come back, you have your, your meal, you go to bed, you go back to work the next day. That was the same with, with doing the rapids, season after season, day after day, week after week, game after game, even during the off-season. Um, so there was a routine. Now that is no longer there, I'm having to try and look busy because my wife is hovering with a clipboard <laughs> that is, I can see has got a number of jobs of, of, um, that have been needing to be done for the last few years. So, yeah, I, I, of course, you know, there's still going to be that connection. And um, we mentioned before we came on air, um, you know, I've covered a lot, a lot of teams down the years and I always kind of keep an eye out for the result, whether it's Brighton or, or Portsmouth or Bournemouth or, or even Arsenal. Um, so, uh, you know, I'll, I'll keep an eye out for the results of the rapids and, and, you know, dip in and out, but certainly not to the extent because there's no need for me. Um, and yeah, as a family man, um, I'm sure there'll be other stuff to keep me occupied at a weekend. Well, we very much want to continue to hear your commentary you know, wherever <laughs> we can, whether that's on Twitter, whether that's uh, via, you know, any method we can, we will we'll be fans. But uh, I did glance at your wife's clipboard, and I hope you hadn't looked at it quite yet because she actually folded it in half. It, this, it is the, a bit the, longer uh, yeah, than you think. Yeah, don't give her any ideas. She's, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I, I, I know you mentioned you won't probably do anything um, with the Rapids in any capacity the next anytime soon. Um for as much as um, kind of supporters kind of blame the Rapids for not having you in their plans moving forward as part of their own in-house media, mm -hmm. a lot of it also goes on Apple. And, and, I, and I think Apple severely missed the mark where they kind of went right over you. You know what I mean? Um, if that if Apple ever comes knocking again, would you take that opportunity? If Amazon Prime, if like something like that comes around, like do you want to? Do broadcasting? Is there anything else in soccer that kind of you might have Absolutely. you might have like kind of a yeah? I mean, you know, look, niche I, for? I've I've done I've I've covered all sports uh, down the years. You know, I've, I think this this year will be thirty well, yeah, thirty four years that I've been in in sport. So you know, I started as a as an eighteen year old coming straight out of, of the equivalent of high school and had my last exam at school on a Thursday and started at a local newspaper on a Monday. Um, had the only suit that I had was like this ill-fitting suit. Didn't have a car. Um, had to try and had to, to get a public transport every day, and uh, I was late a few times because, you know, um, par for the course. The, the the trains in in England were not running on time, um, and you know I was doing swimming and synchronized swimming and track and rugby and cricket and golf and tennis and obviously soccer was in there as well. Um, Yes, yeah, so I've done. I've done sport. That's what I've done, and and, and broadcasting um, for almost as long, for probably you know a little over thirty years. So it's it's what I know. It's what I do. Uh, sport is what I uh, is what I I, I do. Um, 
so if Apple, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I'd love to, to still be involved. Um, and I think that's what makes it more, the more difficult. If it was easy for me to just, just walk away and switch, switch off, it would be a, a far more comfortable process. But it is. It's like going through a period of mourning. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's almost like, you know, somebody's died. It's, kind of, it's like my, my career has, has died. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, if, if Apple decide, you know, six weeks in that they've chosen the wrong people or, uh, you know, at the end of the season, um, absolutely. I mean, I'd l I've loved my time covering Major League Soccer, covering the growth of the league, um, you know, the expansion, the improvements. Um, and it's interesting because I've kind of had half, half an eye on, on the USL and you see as, as the quality has, has arrived at the top of the pyramid within North American soccer, those players that were playing their trade in MLS four, five, six years ago are now dropping down because the standard has got better within, in MLS and those guys that had a job in MLS are now finding that, you know, they're, they're not quite up to standard, so they're earning a living in, in USL. So you can see that the standard of the game is just growing, um, the supporter base, the, just the passion, the stadiums. I've been fortunate enough over the last couple of seasons to, to visit a few stadiums with my son, and we've been to Nashville, and we've gone to Portland and Seattle and Minnesota, Orlando, um, uh, Atlanta, and, and just seeing not only the fan base, but also the stadiums and the infrastructure. Um, so, yeah, I would absolutely jump at the chance to, to get back involved in in Major League Soccer. It's just, as I say, it's a, a shame that, um, uh, you know, there was no there was no kind of then uh, opportunity uh, within the Rapids. So um, that's, I think, you know, Apple, they only had so many places available and, you know, it was trying to squeeze everybody in and somebody's going to be left unhappy. Um, I think the biggest disappointment was that after that, there was nothing. There was nothing that the Rapids could uh, could find me to do within that broadcast team that they announced the other week. So I think that that's the one that's kind of stung. But you know they've they've made that decision. They've made it for the reasons that they feel is going to be you know more valid for them. And maybe they see, see this as a as a chance to reset and move on. And without me, and um, I've just kind of I've got to kind of uh, accept that and, and and move on myself. But yeah, this is a, a bit of a process to go through. Yeah. I would say, looking at the American soccer setup, you could call it a pyramid, not really a pyramid. It's very heavy at the top mm -hmm. when you look at the finances, but um, I would definitely agree that there is a lot of improvement in the USL level, and you know, I would almost reference your career more along the lines of a manager than, than a player. Uh, you talk about players going to find a, you know, a level to settle where, where they're comfortable and play. Um, I think you've pushed the level up in, in the league that you've been in for the last 10 years. I think any broadcast team that has you on will, will be very lucky That's to do so. But, um, you know, if, as a manager and, and as somebody who um, oversees things beyond, you know, being able to play soccer, um, that is a very short lifespan. And I think that uh, your talents extend well beyond, you know, your career length is going to be well <laughs> yeah, beyond and, and, that of a player. <laughs> So, yeah. um, you know, as you as you may look at uh, levels below, have you have you necessarily 
um, watched a lot of like USL championship mm-hmm. level has has been very high in Colorado Springs. The yeah. the relationship there uh, in the last few years with the Rapids, you know, we we kind of cut off the relationship with Colorado Springs. Yeah. But um, have you paid much attention to to any particular teams, or um, are, are are you necessarily? Uh, is that something that you have an eye towards at this point? Yeah, I mean, look, as I say, I'm a broadcaster that's covered the sport at every level. So MLS, USL, NWSL, you know, I love the game. I love the game. I love telling stories. I love describing. I love painting the pictures. So whether it was radio or television, um, you know, television was never really my thing. I, I loved radio. I, I kind of fell into television. Um and, you know, I've just been one of those very lucky fellas where my looks have not faded. <laughs> he said, Our next question was said, skincare routine. Oh, yeah, he said, yeah. Um, but no, in all seriousness, you know, television was never, was never on my radar. Um, I loved radio more because of the intimacy, because you, you know, you were describing that rose to a blind man. You were, you were, were painting every single picture. Um, and so stepping into television... Um, it, w- it was a long time coming. I mean, it was only really, I did a little bit at the BBC, not a huge amount. Um, it was only really when I stepped to Arsenal and did Arsenal TV. Um, so what was that, 2011? Um, and did a couple of years there and and then got snapped up by, by Tim Hinchy and, 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 and dragged over to Colorado. And um, so, you know, any level of the game, any level of the sport, um, I, I would I would jump at the chance because again, you know, I'm, I'm a broadcaster first, um, and it doesn't matter what level of the game. I've had a couple of friends of mine say, "Tell you what you need to do. Uh, th- there's a there's a huge opening in youth soccer." <laughs> I said, "What are you talking about?" And they said, "Well, the, the, the mums and dads they pay a fortune just to have you voice commentary." Over their kids' goals, so I said, I'm not, I said no. I said, well, you know, I said, look, you go and do the legwork, find out whether there's actually an opening, and, and, and get back to me. But, you know, in other words, I I would I jump at the chance at anything. I I um, I remember doing some DU soccer a few years back, and you know, I, I put more preparation into that um, than I did the rapids because I was doing the rapids every day, every week. Um, you know, doing DU men and and, and women's. Um, I wasn't overly familiar, so I, every you know, every game that I do, I have to give due respect to every player, every team, every tournament, um, because for me, whether there's ten people watching, listening, or or, or a million, um, everybody's the, the people that are listening expect to be given a a top level quality uh, and service, and so that's that's always been my kind of. Um, it has been my kind of aim uh, and and uh, kind of the end goal is to bring my best for whatever level. And so, yeah, USL, MLS, NWSL, um, 
Yeah, so you're trying to act as my agent by the sounds of it to get me some work. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah. I'm looking for a pretty big cut. For, well, but, what, what's, uh, yeah, what's, what's 80% of nothing at the moment? Because <laughs> you're quite welcome to that. Hey, you're making uh, 80% of nothing. That's um, 100% of what I'm making uh, doing college or you know college age uh, men's soccer coaching yes. and, and some recruiting work uh, out there. But that's why you do it. You do it for the love mm-hmm. of the game sometimes. And, yep. and that's why we've really enjoyed the commentary here, even in the offseason, that, that you've been able to. To, to provide so we, we really appreciate that uh, I'm glad you mentioned the BBC uh, a little bit uh, mm. stepping away from uh, soccer your Twitter bio mentions you're the first BBC sport fella mm. to step inside of North Korea can yeah. you kind of tell us about that that's kind of a uh, it, yeah, it, that was touched base about that. Yeah, that was 2005. That was uh, around about this time, February, March time of 2005. Um, and there's there's a, um, a a program on the World Service called World Football, um, and I was kind of one of the uh, the guys behind launching that back in whenever it was 2002, 2003, something like that, and. Um, I remember that I, I used to come up with these kind of weird and wacky ideas just to go go off and t- again I'm, I'm a storyteller I love human interest stories I love talking to people I love kind of digging deep and finding out what makes them tick and um, so I remember the producer came up to me one time and he said right what have you got what have you got he said you know any ideas I said yeah I want to go to North Korea and tell <laughs> the, the the story of North Korean football he said what and and for those that are, are, are unfamiliar um, they've only featured at the World Cup twice, 1966 and 2010. Two-time winners. Nin- <laughs> yes, according to the North <laughs> Korean media. Um, and 1966, they actually beat Italy and knocked Italy out. Um, and Italy arrived home in disgrace. They were pelted with t- rotten tomatoes. And, um, then they took a 2-0 lead against Portugal in the quarterfinals and Eusebio came back and scored a hatful of goals and Portugal got through. But they returned as heroes and they were these kind of mythical figures and they were kind of embraced by um, the fans uh, in England in, in 1966. And there was a guy, one of their players, Pac Duick, uh, scored against Italy. And, and again, my, my dad kind of grew up telling me stories of these, these, these North Korean team. So I knew that there was a rich history there, but just nobody nobody could tell it. Nobody knew about it. Uh, they had a strong women's team at the time. Um, so I said to, to my producer, I said, I, I'd like to go to North Korea. He said, nobody goes to North Korea. He said, particularly Western journalists. I said, well, I'll see what you can do. So this was probably September, October of 2004. Um, and he came back to me a few weeks later and he said... Um, Right, we're sending you to Malaysia. I said, what for? He said, because you're going to meet with the North Korean delegation. They want to meet you. I said, okay. So I went to Malaysia, went to Kuala Lumpur, um, met with the North Korean delegation at the Malaysian FA headquarters, um, came back. That was just before the tsunami of 2004, about two weeks before that. Got back, didn't hear anything, and then probably late January... I got a call saying, right, you're in. They're, they're going to allow you in for a World Cup qualifier. And under FIFA rules, you had to let in international media for World Cup qualifiers. Um, at no other time, but World Cup qualifiers. 
So I went in via, uh, went London, Frankfurt, Frankfurt, Beijing, um, had an, an overnight or a couple of nights in Beijing, wandered around Tiananmen Square, got tracked by Chinese secret. They, they, and, and again, it happened in Tunisia. People come up and say, oh, I work at your hotel. Like, my hotel's two miles away. How have you identified me as working at my hotel? Um, so I, you know, I got kind of taken around uh, Beijing and went to got my visa uh, from the North Korean embassy and flew out on Koryo Koryo Airways, which is the North Korean airline, and it, had, it was the only airline I've ever been on that had a carpet up the side of the aircraft. <laughs> so, so you know, the, the, the static that, that that was generating was amazing. And this very triumphant, kind of very patriotic military kind of music that was blaring. The cabin crew were all military. Um, I, goodness knows how it got off the ground, this, <coughs> this aircraft. Um, and we landed in Pyongyang with the only aircraft on, 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 the, on the tarmac. Um, got through and um, I had three guys waiting for me uh, holding up a sign Fleming BBC and um, those guys were my shadows for the next week so I arrived on the Saturday um, the rest of the media didn't arrive until the Tuesday so for the first three three or four days I was the only journalist in the hotel which was the same hotel as tragically that American young man uh, Warmbier who who came back obviously in a vegetative state and, and passed away but that tragic story that was the hotel that he was in um, and it was like some, some secretive 21st floor or whatever it was which was kind of where they had all the listening devices that he you know he was he was caught and and and, and obviously you know there were tragic circumstances uh, that that unfolded um, so the first day on the Sunday, I was taken to a, an art gallery. The second day, I was taken to their equivalent of Hollywood Studios. It was their film studios. On the Tuesday, when the other media had arrived, we were taken to um, the cities, to, to Pyongyang's city center, and there was all kind of history. I think on the Wednesday, we went to the mausoleum where Kim Il-sung, who was the founding father. Kim Jong-il was his son. He's since passed away, and it's now the grandson who, who's, who's in charge. Um, and all of this time, I'm, I'm speaking, because I'm, I'm, I'm doing radio. I wasn't doing television. And I was wanting to interview people. And they were, you know, they were very polite, but it was like, yeah, we, may, maybe, maybe. <laughs> because they, never, they didn't want to say no. And throughout all of this, I was getting more and more frustrated. To such an extent, I was working with, I was working you know, with some, some other journalists that were there. And we went to the mausoleum where this Kim Il-sung was lying in state and we had to bow. We had to, you didn't bow to the head, so you, as he's lying in this glass cabinet, this casing, you went to his left side and in, th in group of three and bowed to the feet and bowed and to the, to the right side. And as we're walking around, I was uh, this. This is the Wednesday. I've been here this since the, I've been there since the Saturday, and I was so kind of cheesed off that I wasn't getting any audio. People weren't wanting to talk, and and I was uh, like mid bow at his feet. I'm like, I'm like for crying out loud, you know, nobody wants to interview me. And I said, and I'm I'm here with this dead guy, 
I said, and he's not spoken in 15 years. I'm not going to get anything out of him. <laughs> and the guys either said, shh, shut up. You know, gonna, but it was, it was a really frustrating um, assignment in the end. I mean, it was fascinating. It was, it was unnerving because every, every couple of days, my, and, and I, had, I had two minders that followed me everywhere and a driver. And when I stepped out of the elevator, they got out of there in in the lobby. They they would stand up and they would they would you know walk me outside. I wasn't allowed to walk outside freely. I had to get in the car. I couldn't walk anywhere. I'd be driven everywhere. Um, I was told before I arrived that the room would be bugged, um, and so you know it was it was an, an eerie kind of um, experience. And then probably Monday or Tuesday, my minder, the senior minder, and they, they, they told me that they were North Korean Olympic Committee. They weren't. They were Secret, they were secret Service. They were North Korean Secret Police. Um, and then they came to me and said, well, we, we've got, we, we need you to settle your bill. I said, that was good. I've cleared my, my BBC corporate credit card. No, we don't take credit cards. So, okay. I brought, I think I'd like add 2,000 euros or $2,000 in cash. Um, I thought, well, that's going to cover me. A week in a North Korean hotel in 2005, $2,000 should be good. I should, you know, I'm not staying at the Ritz. Um, so it got to the Thursday, and just before we were leaving for the stadium, he said, oh, we'll settle your bill now. It was like three and a half grand. I'm like, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm $1,500 short here. And I was due to fly out on the Saturday morning. And I was meeting up the, the British ambassador that I'd met up with. Uh, I'd arranged a dinner at the British Embassy on the Friday night with the su surviving members of the 1966 team, the North Korean team, including Pak Duik. So I'm sweating. I'm thinking, okay, right. So the first thing I did was phone the BBC, phone my boss, and I said, look, in, in kind of understated British kind of stoicism, I said, we're in a bit of a pickle here. Um, and so she she went off and, and, and had conversations. I phoned my wife. She was in tears. I know where the tears of joy because I wasn't coming back. <laughs> um, but she was in she was in tears down the down the line. Went and did the game on the th on the Thursday Friday Friday night. Um, we went to the British Embassy, and I arrived and I said to we were having our coats taking our coats off and. The British ambassador said, oh, you know, would you like a drink? I said, I've, I've got a bit of a problem. He said, I've heard, would you like a drink? I said, okay. So he, he, got, a, he got a beer and, and then somebody came out of a side room, one of his staff, and they said, oh, Mr. Fleming, there's a, there's a telephone call for you. I said, a telephone for me? He said, yes. So I walked through, left my minders, two of my minders that had come in with me. Um, and picked up this handset that was in this darkened room. And it was almost down like a tunnel. There was this voice at the other end, a very British voice. Um, I said, this is the Foreign Office in, in London. Uh, this is a, a secure line, so we're, 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 we're clear to talk. I'm like, what? I've only come here to cover a game of football, and all of a sudden I'm kind of thrown into this, this world of espionage. Um, and he said the ambassador will... will go to his private safe, which I later learned, because I've got some friends in the diplomatic corps, they never do. They never do. They, you know, if, they, if there's a British subject overseas, they will march you to an ATM. That wasn't possible in, in Pyongyang, in North Korea. You couldn't access their, their ATM. So I got the money. The final kick between the, the groin, the next morning when I went to the airport, I went through security, and it was all open plan, so my minders were still there. Went through security, checked the bags, 
and there's this North Korean um, immigration officer in military military gear who started to berate me in Korean. I had no idea what he was saying. So the senior secret service guy who came walking up, they started to get into an argument. I said, what's going on? He said, you stayed a day longer than you should have done. I said, I'd have gone home yesterday. Yeah, I'd have gone home yesterday. Actually, um, I think it might be a few yeah, days overdue yeah. for headed so home. So he, he kind of, the, the, the senior guy kind of berated the guy and he kind of stepped back and, and let me through. And I remember to this day, they gave me a big hug as I left, they gave me a, a huge hug and they said, come back soon. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not rushing to, to get back. So yeah, it was, it was professionally, it was really frustrating because nobody was prepared to talk because they, they, they were so suspicious of, of, of Western media or any form of media. Was it as staged? Um, you know, I've, I've heard some journalists say that when you go, it's very, it feels yeah, yeah. like a production around oh, yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. Um, as I say, everything everything was tailored to keep us out of trouble. Um, you know, we were kept busy. We were, you know, day trips here and excursions. And it was all a, a way of just not allowing us to pry and look around and see what else was going on. Um, and everything was kind of the bleached version of... Uh, but, you know, it was weird because their history was... It's, it's almost like a parallel history to the rest of the world. Um, there was a, there's a, 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 a monument um, in, in the middle of Pyongyang, and it looks like the Arc de Triomphe. It's, it's shaped like the Arc de Triomphe, and they refer to it as the Arch of Triumph, which in <laughs> French is the Arc de Triomphe. And on the two, on the downward pillars, they had two years, and it was like 1926 and 1945. And one of my colleague said you know what's the significance of those two dates and our tour guide said those are the years that our leaders were in exile and then um, you know Kim Il-sung uh, freed us from the imperialist Japanese you fooled me with those dates I would have said the last time Tottenham won a title well no it's got to, it's got to end in the year one for, for Tottenham to have won anything um, and so in other words there was this idea that the Japanese, the Second World War, in their mind, the Second World War was ended by Kim Il-sung and this band of kind of the North Korean equivalent of the A-team coming in rather than the atomic bomb on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. So from th that point on, their history was kind of built around this, you know, this romantic idea that Kim Il-sung and, and, you know, uh, 20 guys had, had kind of rid them of, of, of the Japanese and that's what their history dictated. So it was, it was, a, it was a strange, I mean, what is it now, 18, 18 years? I mean, I've dined out on that story for the best part of 20 years. And w as soon as I start it, you can almost see my wife's eyes glaze over. <laughs> oh. She can almost kind of regale it word for word because she's she's heard it so often and then you know there's North Korea I mean the other my other kind of big story is um, talking football with Elton John in his dressing room in Vienna uh, before a concert that he did in 2008 um, you know in, in other words and you know Enrique Iglesias I mean that was a weird kind of 36 hours I got a call I was in Vienna for the European Championships in 2008 and uh, I got a call from the from my BBC office on on the Friday morning, 
Uh, so we, we, you need to get to the to the to the stadium, the the, the main stadium in Vienna. Uh, the final was on the Sunday. Um, you, we we needed you to do to do an interview. I said, oh, who's it with? They said uh, Enrique Iglesias. I said, well, what? They said, yeah, Enrique. He's because he'd he'd done the official song. Oh. So I got to the stadium. Didn't get so lucky to have Shakira. She, no, sadly, sadly <laughs> not. Um, she was at the 2010 World Cup, no. but I was I was in Cape Town and, and not Johannesburg. Um, so yeah, so I was, you know, Enrique Iglesias. That night we went. I was with Chris Waddle, um, and and we went to um, a UEFA uh, event that they'd put on for the media. And then the next morning, uh, Pierluigi Colina, the old Italian referee, uh, who was there working for one of the credit card companies that was the sponsor. And then that night, the Saturday night, we went to some small, um, very kind of uh, um, uh, compact uh, auditorium, I know, 8,000. And um, it was Elton John. And I was with uh, Graham Taylor, who was uh, big friends with Elton John, manager of Watford, Aston Villa, and England. And um, it got us VIP passes, and then the next thing we're being whisked down into the bowels of the of this uh, arena, and we're in Elton John's dressing room chatting Beckham and Billy Joel and <laughs> drunken nights out in London. And big contrast from North Korea. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, but, uh, but again, it's just the the journey that I've been on, and you know, you talk about the passion and wanting to to still be involved and still just because I've met wonderful people, been given great opportunities. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just a very, very lucky. I had a I had a, a speech impediment until I was about 11, 12 years of age. And, you know, I had to overcome that. And you know, that kind of impacts your confidence. And, you know, when I look back now, I think, you know, here's a guy who, who had a speech impediment from a little village in the south of England who's traveled the world talking for a living <laughs> and you know i'd never have, have have even envisioned that in the slightest so i don't ever take any of what i've done for granted i never assume that i'm going to walk in to a job and you know i never you know, assumed that apple or, or the rapids is as as disappointing and, and and upsetting as as all of that is you know it's the nature of the beast there's other people that they prefer there's other people that are better um, it's a very subjective industry. The voice is a very personal thing. Some people like the voice. Some people don't like the voice. It's not that you can't do the job. I can broadcast, as most people can talk. It's just that my voice is, is not the right fit at the moment. So we'll just have to... Maybe I we, we had one of the, the staff at the Celtic come in who's Irish, and he was encouraging me to maybe pick up an Irish accent. Maybe that's the way forward. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I think I speak for uh, Jared and myself here where we say, like, you've lived a very fascinating life. I think uh, I'd pay for a book <laughs> just for all <laughs> of your little life stories because you're yeah. a great storyteller, man. And, and Thank you. I think stories are a very powerful thing that you, you kind of sucked me <laughs> and Jared in. I hope the listeners have also kind of, you know, been really in tune with what you're saying because that's those are amazing stories. Yeah. And, I was in I was in Mali in 2002. One other one, because I'm on a roll now. <laughs> yeah, keep uh, we, we we were in Mali for for the Cup of Nations, my first Africa Cup of Nations, first ever trip to Africa, and I was with an, an experienced uh, sound engineer was with me, and we went from Bamako, which is the capital of Mali, and we went west to a, a city called Kai, K A Y E S, right on the border with Senegal, and it, it's a right out in the sticks, out in the middle of nowhere. Um, 
there's only there's obviously three ways of getting there. You can get there by train, but the train regularly derailed. You can get there <laughs> four by four. <laughs> <laughs> Not what you want from your train service. And we saw we saw the train pulling out of the station in Bamako, and there were people clinging to the outside yep, of the that. train. Um, you could get there uh, with a, a four by four vehicle. Um, but two days before we were due to fly out, one of my BBC colleagues arrived all bloodied and dusty. They'd, they'd rolled their four by four, they'd had a blowout. So I'm thinking, okay, so train, no. Uh, car, no. So the other the other option was was flight. Hot air balloon. So we had that, or hot air balloon. Um, <laughs> and so uh, myself and, and, and my engineer, we went to uh, to the airport, got on a, it was a private jet that was laid on for the two teams and a handful of media and the CAF, the Confederation of African Football Executives. And it was incredible. I'm sat there with a, a very well-known um, African uh, journalist, guy called Mark Gleason, who's a very well-known South African journalist, worked for Reuters for many, many years, fantastic guy, very well-connected. And he's like six foot six. So I'm sat with him at the bulkhead because he needed the leg room. So I'm, I'm great, you know, sat with him. And there's, um, you know, the two teams, I think DR Congo was one of the teams and uh, I forget who the other team were uh, that were on with us. And we're sat there and we're just ready to taxi to, to, to take off. And all of a sudden the doors open again and somebody comes on and they drag like five or six of the journalists off and they, get them off the aircraft and some dignitaries from the Confederation of African Football come on with their with their ladies with their with their partners and as they're getting on Mark Gleason's saying well that's not his wife well that's not his girlfriend well I know that's not his wife I'm like and so I'm kind of getting dragged into the in intrigue of just what goes on behind the scenes at these major tournaments so we arrived at this airport it's like a, an hour and a half flight and it was like um, a UNICEF village. It was the poverty was so apparent. There was there was you know raw sewage in in the streets. There were you know kids walking around with you know with, with bare feet and nothing on. And it was it was just very just terribly terribly sad to to kind of walk into this. And I was even though it was my first trip to Africa. I was very mindful of, you know, no jewelry, no watch. And it wasn't from a security standpoint. It was just not wanting to rub wealth in the, the you know, into the, you know, the noses of, 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 of these people who had nothing. And yet they were prepared to give you whatever they had. They were, you know, immensely generous as, 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 a, as a culture. So we arrived in this, uh, at this airport, which was a, which was a one door in, one door out building on, on a, an airstrip, um, in the middle of nowhere, about half an hour from the town. So we walked out and there was a bus, there was a media bus waiting for us. We thought, brilliant. So we got on the bus, took us to the stadium. We thought, this is, this is quite good actually, in the middle of nowhere, but there's a, there's a bus waiting for us. And two other buses took the, the two teams off to the stadium. We got to the stadium, did the game and came outside afterwards and there was no bus. Oh, and I'd forgotten to tell you, because there's no schedule, we were basically told, we're taking off when we're ready. If you're not here, we're leaving you here, and the next game is on Sunday. This was like a Thursday. <laughs> so we were like, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll be back. You know, we'll, we'll, you know we'll, no, no problem. Okay, right, we've got the media bus. Not a problem. We've got transport to the stadium. So we got outside the stadium. There's no media bus. 
So we waited and we waited and you could see kind of, you know, anybody that's seen planes, trains and automobiles, you know, when they're all looking for that, uh, you know, they're looking for the next trip and there's, you know, they're, they're running low on, on seats and they all kind of look at each other <laughs> and then try and furtively make out that they're not looking for a, a taxi rank. So we're looking around and I walked up in my very kind of broken French and I spoke to one of the security guys and I said, you know, media bus. He said, what are you talking about? Media bus. I said, well, there was a, a there was a bus that brought us here from the airport. He said, that's not a media bus. That he said, did you not tip him? He said, no. He said, well, that's just a local guy who <laughs> owns a bus. <laughs> if you didn't tip him, he's not coming back. Wow. And I, I'm, and then and then all of a sudden, I, we've got to get to the airport, otherwise they're leaving without us. <sighs> so we got outside and we're running down to the to the to the city centre. It's more like a kind of a small town. And we joined the, this long queue of about 20 people queuing to get into a car. It was, like a, it was an old, for those that know their cars, it was like an old Ford Anglia. It was this battered old car. And there was a big Malian, big West African guy at the front who was basically, he was vetting people whether he was going to let them in or not. <laughs> and this could only fit four people in. This was not, you know, we were the only white guys in town. We were the only white guys in this town. So, of course, we stood out like a sore thumb. So this guy looks down the end of the line, spots the two of us, myself and, and my colleague, and he beckons us forward. And this was the power of the BBC. He said, BBC? We went, yeah. He hoiked two of the guys that were already in the car. He hauled them out and he shoved the two of us in there. And I'm on the front seat. And I'm in this front seat in the passenger seat and I'm about five or six inches lower than the driver because I realized there's no padding. I'm sat on the springs of this car. <laughs> and as we get out of town, there's no light pollution whatsoever. No light pollution. And it gets dark because you're quite close to the equator. The sun just drops and it gets dark very, very quickly. So we get outside of town and it's pitch black. And I notice that he's got no headlights. He's got no wing mirrors. He's got no rear view mirror. And we're chundering along and it's just rickety and we're on the road and that we know that the road bears around to the right but he was he could see the lights of the airport in the distance <laughs> so he because uh, there was no need for any of the locals to ever go to the this airport which was new had only been built for the for the for the tournament so he drove as the as the crow flies. He drove directly <laughs> towards it. So all of a sudden we're going off road. I've got no I've got no cushion on my seat. It oh. was very very painful. And my colleague behind me said, "I don't want to worry." He said, "But I haven't got I haven't got a floor." And I looked round. His entire oh. floor had, <laughs> had, had had rusted away. So it was like the Flintstones yeah, car. That's exactly what it I sounds thought. like. My first yeah. ride in high school. Yeah. So we screech, we screeched to a halt, and there's. I mean, I, I I don't want to use the word ravine, but it was a drop. It was probably a seven or eight foot drop, and there was ribbon around it to kind of ward people off. But we had no light. There was it was like a, a one dipped headlight. So it was like you know driving with a candle, and we kind of braked and, and we went around that, and um, this went on for seemed like an eternity. 
until we kind of got back onto terra firma. We were back on the tarmac. We thought, brilliant. We're back on the road again. And we're heading towards the airport. We thought, great, we're going to make it. We're going to get to the... And we could see up in the distance, we'd just about see the aircraft was still... Because it's the only aircraft there. There was no... As I say, that was the, the next flight was going to be Sunday when actually I was coming back for the, for the quarterfinals. My colleague behind, he said, I don't want to worry you. I said, what? He said, well, you, you know I haven't got a floor. I said, yeah. He said, well, I can see where we are. I said, what? He said, we're on the runway. I said, what? <laughs> he could see the lights of the green and the red lights underneath us. We're on the runway. We're driving up the runway. Now, fortunately, the only aircraft that was going to be taken off or landing was, was currently stationary on, on the tarmac. So I'm, I'm beckoning for the driver to, to pull over and to, to, to get us into the side. He, he got hauled out by the the emergency service guys of the fire the fire station we parked by there and we, we, we kind of made our excuses journalist journalist and uh, and, and made it and, and got on the aircraft but I, I mean again it's just uh, the hair raising we went back a few days later a couple of my colleagues contracted malaria so they had to be isolated we then got back after the game and we were due to fly out the next morning and the the hotel had given our room away so we didn't have anywhere to stay and uh, you know, we were going to be sleeping under the stars. We ended up being put into one of the organizing committee's villas that they were building as kind of a legacy piece of the tournament. The only thing was it hadn't been finished. So it had no glass panes in the window frames and no carpet on the floor. So it was just like a shell of a building. Um, so, we, you know, we slept there on, you know, uh, on a, just a concrete floor. And people think it's a really... A, a very glamorous lifestyle. Elton traveling. John didn't follow you on that trip, did he? No, he. I uh, know he, no, he wouldn't. He wouldn't. Uh, <laughs> he wouldn't have travelled on that one. But I, as I say, I mean, I, as I say, I've, I've been really, really fortunate, really lucky to have done what I've done and to have the stories and the experiences and you know some of them, you know, a gun, a gun under my ribs in in Egypt in a in the the international stadium, a, a rather overzealous. Um, security guard. We were going from Alexandria to Port Said in Egypt, um, and we got pulled over by the police to, uh, at a checkpoint. They they saw that myself and a colleague had British passports, so they then they followed us with police outriders. And I'm I'm getting a little bit kind of antsy in the back, thinking you know, they're just they're going to want a bribe, they're going to want some money. Um, then they pulled in. This was like a three-hour road journey. They pulled in. Um, they, they were, were relieved and some other police outriders uh, took over until eventually I was like, you know, I said to the driver, what, what, what is going on? What, what's, what's happening? We're the only car on the road that's got police outriders. And this was 2006. Um, and he said, uh, I mean, my Arabic, similar to my French, is not good. My Arabic is even worse. <laughs> but he, he managed to convey that between Port Said or by Alexandria, which is in the north, the northern point of, of Egypt, and Port Said, which is kind of uh, south southeast. Um, it goes almost goes across the top of Egypt, and it's the it's the gun running route from Algeria to Libya, <laughs> and it's bandit. He basically said it's bandit country, and they would want you. <laughs> so as a British. As a British citizen, we were being protected by the Egyptian police because if we'd have been pulled over by anything other than police, then we could have been in trouble because that was at a very kind of hairy time um, 
with um, Al Qaeda, and um, it wasn't you know it was a few years after 9/11, but it was still it was still very much active, and Intense. so uh, so we yeah we just we, we we removed all BBC livery from the sides of our cars so that we couldn't be identified, and yeah there was some some hairy hairy moments that I never told my wife until I got back, <laughs> right. um, but. Uh, yeah, just never there. let them see you sweat. Yeah, there to cover soccer, and um, as I say, I, I found myself in, in in a few jams. So, um, <laughs> well, we uh, we really appreciate the stories. Uh, we. Do you mind if we uh, bother you with some questions? Oh, of course, of course. I've, I've yeah, I've, I've talked a long time. <laughs> sorry, sorry. No, we love to hear it. These yeah. are the stories. No, that, you know, that no, this, this is, this is we're, great we're content. This as well, <laughs> you know, I, for as much as you know, we are a C thirty eight podcast. Stories are also just as powerful <laughs> as as much as you know talking about the new Rapids kit or, or whatever. Yeah. You know, um, I got one from Ken H on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Yes, coming from England, how surprised have you been at not only the growth of the sport, but the quality of play that has been preceded here that has been produced here in the US during your time here? Also, what do you think is a realistic ceiling for the Rapids and the United States the United States men's national team? Uh well, Ken is a is a wonderful guy. He's had some lovely things to say over the last few weeks as as things were going south for me. So um so thank you to Ken. Um I mean, again, look, look, I've often said down the years, when, when the United States puts its mind to doing something, it does it well. And for years and years, there wasn't the investment in soccer. There wasn't the investment at the youth stage. When I first arrived here, I think it was U16 and U18. And I remember, you know, people would say, um, you know, the college system and the draft, which... As, as we've seen, is becoming less and less important because you know the the market in in the world of football is is international. Um, you know the draft system. The U.S. was giving the rest of the world a five, six, seven year head start. You know Wayne Rooney making his Premier League debut as a 16 year old. Well, that was unheard of, absolutely unheard of in Major League Soccer unless you're Freddie Adu. Um, and of course, you know he was kind of the, the poster child for MLS at a time when they needed that that golden child. Um, yeah, I remember talking to, to to Marcelo during my first season here, and Deshaun Brown was a player, and you know he was quick, but sometimes his fifth touch was no better than his eighth touch. He was just very erratic, and I used to say to Cello, I'd say, you know, the, the, the guy's touch is terrible. You know, if, if he could work on his touch, he's got that raw speed. And he used to kind of get a little bit defensive. He'd say, yeah, we've we got to remember he's, he's a rookie. I said, yeah, but you've also got to remember he's 22. <laughs> <laughs> and Messi, Messi was world player of the year at 22. Now, I, I know Messi is a different category, but my point was... Yeah. You can't, the standard. The standard and the fact that the, the, the college system was a big provider of talent... And the other thing was, there's no agent and no, sorry, no scout worth worth their weight is looking at a U16 or U18. Now, when academies began to develop U12, U13, U14, yes, absolutely, scouts and agents are identifying 11, 12, 13 year olds because that's at an age where they can identify them, they can get them into a system, and they can bring them through. And so, what have we seen in the last seven or eight years? We've seen that explosion of young talent. 15, 16, 17-year-olds that have left these shores and have gone to play in Europe. That's no coincidence because they've been identified at a younger age. 
So the growth of the sport here stems from that youth development. The league has got better for it. Um, they've obviously seen with, with Almiron, there's that gateway from South America to MLS to Europe. So I think that's a legitimate um, pathway. Um, in terms of the rapid ceiling, I mean, you know, as someone who said he's not probably gonna, not going to be focusing too much on them this year, I did see the story last week. Um, you know, there, were, there, were, there was kind of a, a bit of chatter about the fact that the, the Rapids' three off-season signings, they've cost less than a million. Why are we shouting about that? Yeah. When other teams are paying 10 million for one player. Now, I'm not saying that paying 10 million is the answer and paying less than a million for three is wrong. What I'm saying is, you know, you, you, might, get, you might get lucky with one, you might get lucky with all three, but this is a league where we've seen the new, the new teams coming in are prepared to spend and they're prepared to spend big on key players. Strikers, that's the big money. That, the creative players, that's where the money is being invested. So for the Rapids, it's always, it's always going to be a little tricky for them because they haven't got the purse strings that are being opened like an Atlanta, like a Seattle, like an LAFC. Um, some of these new franchises, Austin, even we see, you know, the likes of Portland uh, are, are spending, you know, big money. So the Rapids are always, they're always working in that, that lower, that lower end and trying to unearth a gem. That then comes back on your scouting team. Is the scouting network wide enough? A lot of players from Europe, let's see how Galvan does this year. And I know there was kind of a, well, if we had Galvan last year, oh well, yeah. What, what do they say about, you <laughs> know, if, 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 my, if, if, Juan my, preached that, he said, uh, Galvan coming back, MLS player of the year candidate yeah. this year, really. <laughs> but if you, if you look at 2021, I think he, he started for like 14 out of 24. Yeah. It, it, would he have been the difference last year? I, 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 I would argue probably not, bearing in mind the defense that the Rapids had. Estevez was not the player. Danny Wilson had a bad year. Abubakar had a bad year. Rosenbury was kind of Mr. Consistent. Uh, Viasia, and the, let's not forget, the Rapids paid a lot oh. of allocation mm -hmm. money for Viasia. I've not seen it. 700,000, 800,000 for Viasia. Uh, Abubakar Keita, who obviously unfortunately was in, injured last year. Um, Oli Laras was injured. Um, Dantuma Toure injured. You, you know, there's been a number of ACLs that the Rapids have had. How, was it three ACLs? Two, certainly two, maybe three ACLs in one season. You don't see that very often. Um, Jack Price was was in and out of the side. So that that linchpin in front of the back four. Um, you know, they often say the spine of the team, don't they? You know, the, the goalkeeper, the centre backs, the midfield, the central midfield, and then um, you know, losing Kellen Acosta again. If you look, if you look at the, and I will get to Ken's final few questions. If you look at the Rapids after 2016, got to the Western Conference Championship. Um, lost out to Seattle. Pablo changed his his, his approach, changed his um, his his philosophy in in that in that second game. He went out and he attacked at home, which he'd not done all all season. He'd sat and he'd cushioned teams coming in and hit them as they tired. He changed his approach for that game, um, and and the Rapids came unstuck. But after that season, that that team was dismantled, and. You know, the, the, the argument was that there were some bad contracts. There were some players that, you know, that were, were just needed to be moved on. And they, tr and they went through a, 
a testing rebuild. <laughs> what happened after testing What rebuild. happened after 2021? Same thing. Okay. Shinyashiki. Obviously, Trusty moved on. Badgie. Kellen Acosta. Nanley. Bassett. Mesquita. So you're losing starters and depth. So 2016, great year. The team was dismantled. 2021, great year. Half, half of the team kind of moved on. So again, I'm not sure whether that is a just what the Rapids have to work with. Because if I'm a, if I'm an agent, at the end of a good season, I'm getting my player a 25% pay rise. Yeah, more and money. And of course, that impacts on the cap. That impacts on, and so you've got to move players on if you're not prepared to to spend. Mm -hmm. That was our fear with Diego Rubio this off season. Is yeah. that he may be, you know, searching that market as he had clearly his career best year yeah. last year. But there's no way Kellen Acosta. I mean, that's that one still puzzles me as as to why, you know, Kellen Acosta, you missed him. Jack Price was injured. Um, Mark Anthony K right out the door yeah, soon you, after. You, you, so you the midfield K was and, decimated. And, and you bring in a Ralph Preso who's now dropped further down the pecking order with the return of Bassett. So, you know, in other words, what the Rapids did in building for 2021 was great and they did it on, on a shoestring they did it on on uh, in relative terms i don't mean as you know they, they weren't paying peanuts they were still paying decent decent whack for some of these players but they're not paying 10 million these guys are not on three four five six million dollars a year but then off the back of that you lose momentum yeah. and it's, it's it's almost like it's cyclical so you have one good year couple of years of rebuild one good year three or four years of rebuild one good year it's like where is this where is this consistent and i know 2020 you could argue if, if the rapids had played points per game if they had to have been forced to play all of the games they played three less games than everybody else um if they'd have had to have forfeited some of those games they may not have made it in Mm -hmm. they play, as I say, they played three less games than some of the other teams. So you're looking at, at 2021, and they were coming good. You know, who's to say what would have happened in 2020 if it if it had been a 34 game season, or even in fact if the Rapids had played all 21, um, as as most of the other teams had. So you're looking at 2016, 2021, but after each of those, there's been a, a backward step, and you can't you can't tell me that the players that have been brought in are a like-for-like -like replacement. Or a club that's got absolute burning ambition is upgrading. So you get rid of a Kellen Acosta, you bring in a player who's better than <laughs> Kellen Acosta. Right. Well, that, that was ideally Mark Anthony Kay, as we thought, as he came in, that's what looked like the natural progression, but, but then, then get rid of the Kay, revolving door yeah, continues. But you then get rid of Kay and you bring in a Preso. That's not, a, that's, not, like that's not an upgrade. Yeah. So that is, that is kind of, I think that is a frustration from a Rapids fan standpoint. It's like, just as they think they're turning that corner and that boast of that desire to be that perennial playoff team, which I, you know, I don't doubt, but then you see some of the moves after a really successful season that don't make sense. It doesn't make sense that you are, you know, the argument was that was a team that was one number nine away from kicking on the following season. And obviously that number nine came in in the form of Zardis, but a load of other guys had left. Yeah. <laughs> so you got your number nine, but you'd lost an Acosta, a K, a Trusty, a Shinyashiki, a Mesquita, a Badgie. Too late. Yeah. 
And, you know, we, we talk about that op-ed that, that came out a number of years ago all the time about how we want to be a consistent playoff team, but that's only words on a page, and those that page is now getting some dust older mites on it. And, and to be honest, and I, we're I looking was, at what happens, uh, what happens in reality. I was I was kind of within the, within the club, and I kind of was seeing what was going on behind the scenes, and I, I was kind of, I'm not sure, because once you put this down in writing, it's a stick to beat you with when it doesn't come to fruition. That's the expectation mm-hmm. now. Because you, now you you've said that's what you're going to do. Now, behind closed doors, great, great. But let your results do the talking. Because otherwise, if you don't achieve what you set out to achieve, and, and it, there could be there could be circumstances beyond your control that, that lead you down the wrong path, but you've still told everybody that's what you're going to do. And it's, it, was a, it was a ballsy move. Um... And, and, and to be fair, you know, the transformation in terms of the style under Robin Fraser, um, you know, has been has been great. And we've been, been seeing some exciting games, a lot of goals. Um, but it's 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 growing from a p- position of strength and the Rapids have taken backward steps from a position of strength. Mm-hmm. When you see other teams, I remember mid-season last year, LAFC were top of the pile. What do they go and do in the summer break? When have got Gareth Bale. Yeah. So we're top of the pile and we're still improving. Whereas the Rapids got to the top of the pile and then, took, and then took a backward step yeah. because they think, oh, we've had a good year. We've, we've done well. We can sell so this. Like, mm, we can sell this. You know, and then the following one with the U.S. men's national team. Sorry, Ken. Well, we don't have, we don't have to talk about that. <laughs> he's, he's probably <laughs> waiting. He's waiting. He's waiting. Anthony I Hudson mean, led U.S. men's national really team. We don't really got to talk about him. I, I, you know, the, the, the men's national team are obviously going to have a, a, a massive um, boost and advantage. Same with Mexico and Canada uh, with the World Cup here in 2026. I would say this. Um, I've long since felt that, and, and, and it would never happen. I saw it with Australia in, in when they were with Oceania and they moved to the Asian Confederation because there was a... a, 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 a Step up. A, a, and also a clearer pathway to World Cup qualifying. Oceania has half a, a qualifying slot. Um, you know, the US, it's almost like, you know, if you imagine the Scottish Premiership, you know that whoever comes out on top between Rangers and Celtic in their head-to-head is normally going to win the league. And it's the same here in this region. Whoever comes out on top normally between the US and Mexico in their head-to-head is going to win qualifying or is going to win Gold Cup. Canada now Canada nosing in there. A nosing in there. But you just wonder whether, whether they're going kind to of, kind of fall away. Because, you know, Panama dipped their toe in Jamaica sometimes, Costa Rica, Trinidad and Tobago a few years back when they made World Cup in 2006. Um, so the powerhouses really have been for, for a long time the USA and Mexico. And, you know, the US... People often say, oh, they can't win on the road. Well, tell me the last time they played a major tournament outside of a World Cup, outside the country. Gold Cup is always hosted here. So you've got an advantage straight off the bat. Tell me any other country around the world that has hosted as many of their confederational tournaments. (laughs) The European Championship, the Asian Asian Cup the Africa Cup of Nations, it moves around. So people say, well, I wonder why America struggles, the US struggles on the road, because they're so used to playing on home soil. So that gives them a bit of a soft underbelly on the road. Hmm. Um, but look, they're getting stronger. The players that are playing at the, in, in the top leagues need to be a little bit more battle-hardened. Um, 
playing at the, at the World Cup in Qatar will, will have done that for them. Um, and it's about the depth now. And I, and I saw it with the Africa Cup of Nations coming through, you know, back in the early days, late 90s, early 2000s, the, the Nigerias and Cameroons and Ivory Coast and Senegals that have, you know, seven out of the starting 11 we be playing in the top leagues in Europe. And then you'd have a guy playing at, you know, Ipswich, who at that time were in the second or third tier. Or you'd have somebody that I think was one guy, George Abbey, played at Macclesfield. So the starting, but then over time you saw, okay, now the starting 11 are all in, and now this, you know, now 15, now the entire squad. So over time, and I think the US is, is getting there, and they will get there over the next few years, it's that depth below the starting 11. Once you get a full squad that are all playing in the German Bundesliga, La Liga, Premier League, Serie A, that is when I think the US can lean upon that depth. Because with all due respect, there is a little bit of a, oh, well, if he goes down, who's the number two at left back? Yep. Or who's the number, who's, who's, who's the backup centre back? Or, well, he's injured now, who, who have we got? Do you have a favourite for number two at left back? Oh, go on. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got into trouble with his family because uh, we're talking about Sam Vines here. Uh, and we went back to, we were in Belgium over, over the holidays and um, we spent Christmas Day with, with Sam and, and my daughter Jessica and um, we got trapped in an elevator. Um, that was one of the, one of the, the, the highlights. <laughs> um, I was getting trapped in the elevator in their, in their apartment building. Um, and... Um, I got, into, I got say got into trouble with his family once because when he scored his goal against Houston, you remember it was the it was the, yep. the long kick from Yarbrough out to Barrios. Barrios squared it, pulled it back. Goodness knows why Vines was up there, but he was. Cut it back and Vines in, into the roof of the net. That was back in April. Yeah, and I think I refer to him as Samuel Vines, and his family were like, "Well, we're the only ones that call him Samuel." <laughs> <laughs> so go back and listen to the tape. I called him Samuel because I had the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, so yeah, I think, look, the, the men's national side from where it was, similar to MLS, from where it was 10 years ago, it's continuing to make strides and yep. it's, it's, it's going to continue down, down that path. And, um, you know, similar to, um, you know, how the women's, the women's game, the women's national team are now finding that the other national teams are catching up with them. It's, it's a process. You know, the U.S. is now beginning to catch up. Um, and, it, and it's about being savvy as well. You know, the more that you've got players playing in other leagues against other styles of play, against, you know, you know just the intensity. And the, one of the things that Sam has, has, has realized playing in Belgium is you've got to bring it every day. Mm -hmm. you know, in training, he's br he broke his collarbone in training. He broke his leg in training. I mean, you know, I don't think he, I don't think he chipped a toenail in training here in Major League Soccer. <laughs> And that's what we have to hope that the players that go get that European experience and see the real, the battle. And when you, uh, there's some players that come back after fighting relegation, which yeah. they don't deal with here. Yeah. Uh, you really realize the ringer and, and you have to bring it every day. We're hoping a player like uh, Bassett comes back in this year and, and comes back well, with and, some more, you know, it, some additional scrutiny. grit. It's the scrutiny that you're under. You know, I remember Sam and, and Jessica, my daughter, arrived at the airport in Antwerp and there's paparazzi. I mean, my daughter was preening to Dad, I got a camera. Stop it. Um, <laughs> You're the one used to the cameras well, and makeup. Yeah, yeah. I do give them tips on my makeup, <laughs> which my wife finds rather strange. Um, so, yeah, yeah. The, the accountability, the scrutiny is is far different. You know, your own fans will turn on you. And I remember 
uh, you know, as, as, as passionate as, as, as the fans are in Major League Soccer, there isn't that bite, that real anger. And it is an anger. It ruins your week. It ruins your week, you know, and, and, and whether that's some of the kind of the culture of sport here is, is an event rather than, you know, you, you go and you tailgate, whether it's the Broncos arriving at eight o'clock in the morning and the game's not till three, um, or the Rapids, you tailgate, and it's part of that experience is the other stuff around the game. Right. Whereas anybody who's sat next to me watching a game, I, I don't, I'm not, I don't want to get up from my seat to go and get some dipping dots or go and get a beer. I'm staying here, and then two minutes before the halftime whistle, I'm running <laughs> off to get my three beers that will see me through the second half or whatever it is. So right. it's, it's that culture of it's, you know, in 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 England, it's the 90 minutes, and oh, by the way, we'll, we might have a beer afterwards. Whereas here, it's, it's go and get a few beers. Oh, oh, oh there's, a, there's a game going on. So it's, it's an event. It's all kind of in, 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 intertwined. And so... Entertainment. Entertainment. So yeah. once, once it becomes all or nothing, you know, there's that old... Um, uh, you must have seen that, that kind of... Um, uh, um, there's a, like, uh, it's a meme, and it's, it's a guy who talks about... Um, uh, cup final tickets. He said, "It's um, he said, I'm getting married this Saturday, but um, my wedding clashes with whatever, whoever, and you can put any team. You know, my marriage, sure. my wedding clashes with with Arsenal in the FA Cup final. Yeah. Um, if anybody wants to take, you know, if anybody wants to step in, um, you know, the wedding starts at one. She's five foot two, and her name's <laughs> Rachel. <laughs> and and yet, in other words, yeah. nothing stands in the way of football." What I don't think MLS has has quite accomplished that that European football it's baked into the culture is mm -hmm. that MLS tries to offer what they think the fans will want, mm -hmm. and European clubs know that they are something that the fans can't live without. Yeah, um, and that's what we have to kind of you know that that culture is what we look to build here. And I think it's difficult because and I you know I I often get that asked by by friends and and family in the UK you know and they they talk about the growth of major league soccer and they talk about the growth of the sport here and you know, I, I remind them that, you know, if it wasn't for the Wall Street crash in 1929, soccer would be the number one sport in the USA. The Wall Street crash of 1929, uh, you know, if you look in the early years of the Open Cup, Bethlehem Steel, the, you know, they were, they were the, it was the, the blue collar workers, the industry, the steelworks, the, the sawmills that had the immigrants and soccer was their first love. And the 1929 Wall Street crash, one of the first things to go within those industries was the social side. So the sports clubs disappeared. And then obviously the industries completely disappeared. And by the time the Second World War and, you know, the, 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 uh, the Great Depression and the Second World War, you, you threw another generation of immigrants who were wanting to assimilate. And so their sports are now baseball and basketball and... and right. American football. Sports, yeah. So uh, what a lot of people also don't realize is that the U.S. sports journalists at the end of the 19th century voted on what they wanted to be the U.S., the number one sport in the United States. It was cricket. <laughs> <laughs> so again, there are sports that had a chance right. to take a foothold and events outside of their control. So... It may have been the First World War. And again, people were wanting that, that nationalism. 
the Wall Street crash, the Great Depression, the Second World War, soccer had a chance. Soccer was the, the big sport in 1910, 1920s. And it was those industries. And again, you look at the early winners of the US Open Cup, and it was those, a lot, lot on the East Coast, Pennsylvania, around that, around that area. So, so soccer has had a chance. So when people outside of these shores say, oh, is, is soccer ever going to take off? It, it, it is huge. Mm -hmm. it's, then you talk about what brand of soccer. Is it League MX? Is it Premier League? Is it La Liga? Is it MLS? Because it's so fragmented. A big yeah. melting pot. It's a huge melting pot. Just like <laughs> just really like a tossed salad because it doesn't necessarily melt. Like yeah. Juan no, doesn't watch right. EPL. No, I don't watch what much Liga MX. So uh, <laughs> exactly. you know, it's it, everybody kind of has their their draw. So when so when people talk about the growth of the game in this country, it's it's there already. It's just having to figure it all together yeah. because it's it's an a la carte. Yeah, I'll I'll watch a little bit of EPL and then you know on a Sunday I'll watch. You know the the Spanish league or the French league, or you know, and and then I've got my MLS team. Um, but what I often say is is to people back in the UK is Major League Soccer arrived in obviously '95, started in '96. It arrived in an already established sports, sports market, yeah. but also an already established global soccer culture. <laughs> and people here in this country already had their favorite soccer teams that weren't. US teams. So they had to quickly establish stadiums, a fan base, a media following, um, you know, players, everything else. And they had to kind of hit the ground running where the rest of the world had had a hundred years. Right. And they'd been without any opposition for the first 40 years. If you think in England, 1860s, 1870s, you know, before Colorado joined the Union, you've got soccer clubs that are, the stadiums are built, and similar to what we see now around Dick's, the community then builds around it. Mm -hmm. So most of those communities, you look at Liverpool Stadium and Everton, they're built, they've got terraced houses around them. Those people who live in those, they've known nothing, nothing else but Anfield or Goodison Park. They... Even before, you know, the internet and you know, kind of widespread entertainment, when soccer was the or sport was the only outlet for the private the private schools and the you know the rugby was their thing and, and obviously soccer was the blue collar thing. The U.S. has had to play catch up, so there has been an element of trying to to force feed you know the rivalries. You know, we had going to have MLS rivalry week. The fans will choose who they hate. Yeah. Um, you know, Salt Lake. It's, yeah, it's, it's <coughs> got to be, but it's got to be organic. But unfortunately, MLS has not had that luxury of saying, "Okay, we'll come back in eighty years and we'll just grow that generational growth." Right. And plus, of course, MLS has landed, and it's got external competition. You know, when when the English league started in eighteen sixty-eight or whatever it was. Um, there was no, there was no understanding of the Spanish league or the French league. There's, you couldn't go and consume any of those other brands. Mm -hmm. But MLS is fighting. It's not only fighting. I mean, again, you take the Rapids here. They're not only fighting the Broncos, the Rockies, the Nuggets, the Avalanche, the college sport, but they're also fighting other leagues within their sport. 
It's a, it's a tremendous battle. And so, again, coming back to the fact that MLS has grown to where it is now and continues to grow is, is a heck of a triumph for them. Hey, Richard, that's a good stopping point for us right there. Uh, we uh, really appreciate you coming on and kind of uh, chatting up with us, telling us some of your stories. And uh, we really hope the best for you. Thank Again, you. we were so so honored to have you on here, and uh, we can only wish you the best. Uh, you can follow me at Warners Seven One Five. Jared, where can they find you? You can find me at Jared underscore Geisler on Twitter. Richard, where can we follow you? For the moment, uh, I don't know how much longer uh, at Fleming Sport, but uh, it might it might be a bit quiet. I haven't got much to say these days. I, I, look, I've been talking for nonstop for the last <laughs> yeah. hour, or so no, so I, I'm. Um, but yeah, I, we'll, we'll we'll see where the next the next few months leads a me. But um, any parting words before we close out? Well, just wishing you guys all. And, and look, I, I know I said it at the end of last season. Um, you know, I, I I'll be forever grateful for the fans, uh, to the fans, to C38, to the to the Rapids fans. Um, you know, they embraced myself and my family as, as soon as we stepped off that, that aircraft and they've, they've done so ever since. Um, you know, I'm just sad that I'm not going to be around the club and continuing that, that connection um, and continue to, to tell the stories. But it's, it's, been, a, it's been a heck of a ride. And, and it's, look, the, the reason I did it was obviously for the, pay, the paycheck, <laughs> but it was also for, for the fans and, and you know, the, the fact that there was that huge appreciation and there has been that appreciation of my body of work is has made it all worthwhile so it's 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 incredibly uh humbling for me uh, as i say as, as a as a guy come from a small village in in england never expected to have this journey and to have the the kind of support and the uh um the very kind words uh, from from so many people um has been incredible one final story which kind of just kind of hits home is first couple of years i was here i was i was doing an event for the club at the paramount and i stepped out of the parking lot and i wasn't sure i knew the paramount was kind of somewhere behind me and i didn't know whether to go right out of the parking lot or left so i went right and i kind of followed the flow of the of the of the pedestrians and i almost bumped into this guy and he looked at me and he went richard i went oh hello and i'm terrible with kind of names so i thought oh my word he's he seems to know. We, we must have met somewhere. <laughs> he said, it, it, it's Neil. I went, oh, hello. Ni Hi, Neil. I thought, well, he's, he's so convincing. He went, Actually, we've, we've never met. He says, I've seen you on the TV. And I just, I, I feel that I know you. Oh. And that was just brilliant. And I know somebody a few days ago was talking about Cello and I watching. He, was, he used to watch us with his wife and his grandmother. And to him, it was just like, watching with with two good friends and that is what we tried to convey because look in all honesty i'm just like everybody else i'm a, I'm a sports fan i've just been a, in a very very fortunate position um i often say to people to be on television of course you need an element of an ego of course you do um but i just hope that one that when that kind of camera switches off that i'm still the guy that you know the people in my neighborhood know my wife and my kids more than they know me so that kind of keeps me grounded. And as I say, it's, it's been very humbling to hear all the kind words over the last few weeks and um, yeah, a lot of great memories that I'm going to take with me. So thank you very much. You always got the open invite here if you ever yeah. want to. Gratitude very much reciprocated. Yeah. Uh, a metaphorical key to C38. Uh, whenever we could have you at the tailgate on the podcast, um, whenever we can we have a chance to hear from you, Richard, we, we are honored to do so. Lovely. Thanks, guys. Thank you very much, Richard. Uh, of course, you can follow C38 at C38SG, Centennial 38 
on Facebook and all of the platforms. You guys have a great rest of your weekend, and we'll see you when we see you. Bye-bye.